Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter is noted for saying that there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. Our guest today, Porvi Bhatt, can attest to that. Having been a caregiver herself since she was 28, supporting a father who had dementia and a mother who had complex lung disease and multiple cancers. Despite her family responsibilities, she built an impressive career as a global health leader, holding high-level positions at Levi Strauss, Medtronic, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, amongst many other organizations. She's currently a member of the 2022 National Fellowship for Caring Across Generations, which is focused on cultivating the advocacy and communication skills of family caregivers. By the way, I mentioned that Rosalind Carter, quote, intentionally because Porvi is Secretary of the Board of Directors of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. Thanks so much for joining us today, Porvi. Thank you, Vaughn. Porvi, you have become a national voice advocating for policies to support caregivers based on your own experience. So let's start by learning more about that. You said that being an only child, daughter, and caregiver of immigrant parents gave you a unique front row seat to appreciating what really happens when care comes home. Tell us more about that. Sure. To start the story, it's important to understand my immigration history. So I'm a second-generation immigrant of Indian parents. My parents came to the United States in the early 60s, so pre-civil rights. They are also partition-generation Indians who uh, went through independence in India as well. So I was raised uh, within this family that was coming and breaking barriers both at home and uh, choosing to come to the United States, mainly to make sure that there was a better opportunity, not only for me as their daughter, but also for generations of the family back at home in India. And so as they came here, you know, my father came uh, by boat, uh, took him quite a bit of time to get here. And my mother followed him two years later. And I came one year after that. And so the story began. And as you rightly said, we have quite a bit of care taking responsibilities that came my way over the years. My mom actually uh, had her first cancer when I was quite young, which is why I'm an only child. And I'm an only girl child. So all of those things are ingredients that are important in recognizing you know, what happens in a family and how we end up adjusting and adapting to care. I grew up culturally uh, understanding and believing that it was my responsibility and my privilege to take care of my parents. And as such, I was adjusting throughout my education and my and my career opportunities to make sure that I could do that. And lo and behold, my father's uh, dementia surprised us all. And it came at such an early age for him at 58. I'm 56 today. So I feel that now very acutely. And I can only imagine what he was thinking at that time. And today we hear the story of so many young people who are feeling the pressure of having to consider caring for their own parents uh, while they're in their 20s. And we see many more of them today. I'm of the Gen X generation, so there aren't as many of us. Um, but I was doing it very similarly at that time. And that carried forward all the way through till this year when my mother recently passed away. So with over nearly 30 years of caregiving on top of growing my career, 
Um, what's important for me is recognizing that I was trained in healthcare. I led and continue to lead a lot of work in the healthcare space. And lo and behold, I ended up being uh, not only a consumer of healthcare like all of us are, but in the most fragile time of life, in the most unique and uh, precious situation at home and saw firsthand where things are breaking down. And it is when we try and bring care home. It's also in the times that are the most culturally sensitive. You know, we know that culture in our family and our community really comes to life at birth, at marriage and at death. And these end of life stages are so culturally diverse and rich. And so much of our health system hasn't yet caught up with what we need to do to make sure that we all get what we hope to get when it is time for us to meet our end of life moments and to ensure that our families have what we need. So I now I'm doing what I can to bring voice to this and to see what we can do as a full community, but also specifically in healthcare, so that we're actually setting up what we can in the best possible way for a diverse solution for families who are looking to take care of uh, the end of life stages at home. Porvia, I was wondering if you could just give us some insights for any of our audience members who are thrown into this situation, right? In, in, in the case you, you may not have too much lead time. Is there a cycle of emotions that you experience and then sort of a set of steps that people go through? Yeah, you know, in my experience and what I'm learning from others uh, who are going through this, not only in caregiving, but also in grief and loss. So it's a continuum. It's two sides of the same coin, frankly. It, it happens without planning. You know, it, I remember when it happened for me, like I said, in, in my late 20s, it was at a stage of life when everyone else was planning a different part of their life. Uh, they're thinking about family, but in a different way, how to grow their family, considering partnership and children while also growing their careers. And uh, never once would I have expected that my time to take care of my parents would have come as soon as it did. And during that same phase when other, other questions were in front of me. And even back then, and I certainly have sharpened that question now, but at that point, I remember feeling the shock of it, um, never questioning that I needed to do something, but also realizing I was ill-prepared. And you know, I'll keep peppering in the immigrant experience because I, I felt that I was ill-prepared in a couple of directions. The first being, I didn't see my grandparents grow older in front of me. My grandparents were in India and we experienced them. I experienced them uh, in, in routine visits and spending time, but not every day. And for my parents as well, they experienced supporting their family mainly through letters and phone calls, uh, not as much in a day-to-day -day experience. And so when aging shows up and when crisis in healthcare shows up here in the United States, and we as first and second generation immigrants haven't had the opportunity to even experience that phase of life, it can be very uh, challenging. It can certainly feel like a bit of a crisis, like what do I even do? So that was a, a challenge. It remained a challenge all the way through because that was just uh, the beginning of, of the journey for us. The other piece of it was just planning. I remember thinking at that time in my 20s and talking about it with my friends, like, wow, for all of that time we spent thinking ahead, planning ahead from the time we were early teenagers, sometimes even before then, all the way through to college, right? Really figuring out and having this, this illusion of control, uh, this belief that, hey, you will have a hand in determining when you will define your family and define what you want to do with your family. You will determine your future. Never once in that preparation process for young people do we ever begin to explore 
there may be someone older that will need to come and need your help. And you won't, you won't dictate the terms of that. That will just happen and you will need to be just as ready. And so I'm a big proponent of that kind of uh, planning and bringing more proactive questions into the process. Uh, I noticed the other day, even in my own financial planning, um, and even in doing it for my parents and with my parents, it was clear that there's a whole algorithm of questions were asked, and it's all about when do you want to retire? Do you feel you have what you need? Do you have what you need for your children's education? But never once does anyone explicitly ask, do you believe you'll have someone in your care that isn't a child today? Do you believe that they have enough resources for it? Do you believe you'll need to have resources for it? All of the things that we use to plan for our future from 401ks and retirement and even Medicare, uh, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid in some cases, never once do we really come into a conversation about the other ring of care that goes beyond children, but into the elders that we are here to support. And if you're an immigrant family, it's even more important because if it's not prompted, and especially in, in the system that we live in today, you won't realize what you may need because no one's bringing that to you as elders get older and, and haven't experienced it for themselves yet. Well, this element of planning ahead, but also the aspect of emotionally processing leads me to think, well, in the in the process of growing a family from uh, adding children, you, whether it's through adoption, you know, there's a one or two year process that you have to go through for adoption. And there's so many books on what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. If you're having a child, but I'm not sure how much is out there when it comes to, you know, taking care of, of your parents or someone uh, older. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of conversation now around, do we even realize that we're taking care of people? Do we identify as being a caregiver of some sort? I love Mrs. Carter's quote and, you know, look at how long ago she even coined that phrase, right? We're now on the brink of realizing that we're in this tsunami, but it's been growing for quite some time and uh, all of us are taking care of someone. And if we're not, we certainly will be on the on the other end of it, receiving care from someone. And and how do you think that through uh, proactively is tough. I, I imagine some of it I know from my own side is it's, it's hard to think about things that might be sad um, and the loss of a parent or, or anything that that makes them less than how you know them today can be difficult to think ahead for. I imagine people shy away from it. I, I think we have a culture that does shy away from the difficulties of loss and grief and, and the strain of care. And we have a great opportunity now to almost rebrand it as a, as a way of how cultures come together to support each other and to find joy in the coming together versus the fear of uh, stepping on something that you shouldn't have because of the emotions. But it is isolating. There's no way around it. The the process of care, the feeling of, oh, my gosh, I need to do something. Um, it is stressful because, of, of course, we all want to do the very best we can for those that we love. And when that hits, it's a it's an illogical emotion, right? It comes at you fast and it's hard to process at times. I'm like, how can I provide the best here? When you also know that you're out of an age when you need to deliver the best you can for yourself and, and for other members of your family. And that can be difficult to navigate, especially if you don't have counseling, coaching, you know, anyone to lean on to help you kind of see a way through. Well, let's talk about your supposition to rebrand this whole role of caring. The aspect of the responsibilities for care had been largely off the radar for most employers, or at least kept to a minimum until the pandemic. And then millions of women had to exit the workforce. So how should we be supporting working daughters so that they can grow their careers while giving care? 
I think opening the conversation first. Uh, one of the tactics I started to use, especially since my father's dementia happened so early, I'd come to every, even a job interview with my cell phone on the desk. And I would use that as an opportunity to very openly convey that I was a working daughter, much as we are more and more comfortable with working moms and working dads. I openly would say that, you know, you may have your phone out because of a soccer injury or something that might happen at school. I have mine out because my father might wander. And either way, we may need to drop everything and go take care of what we need to take care of. And I purposely did that because I knew that my situation was more unique that there weren't as many people talking about it. I didn't see it, at least. And I felt a little bit of an edge. I was feeling like, well, there seems to be something here for working moms, but not as much for working daughters. And don't we all have someone to take care of? So the rebranding, you know, it really does feel like it's around how do we really show up as our full selves at work? And that's a throwaway quote nowadays, how <laughs> to show up as our full selves. But some of it is to just be our full selves and to start talking about what's happening and finding vulnerability and comfort in each other and in how we build community at work and at home. And so to me, the first step of rebranding is to be clear about what's happening. Um, you can't rebrand something without being clear about what exists today. And starting to pull in what we're all trying to see both again at work and in our communities, which is a sense of belonging and a sense of inclusion. Both of those uh, sensibilities require, again, vulnerability and acceptance. And the notion of a partial self uh, doesn't allow us to, to really appreciate each other. Uh, what I've learned over the years in having no, I felt no choice but to be open, uh, is that it opened the conversation for others. And as soon as that happened, my stress got better. And I would have never guessed it. Remember when I was at one of my past employers, a whole hallway of us were, were at a certain age, we were representing a certain, a certain age group um, and demographic and a certain level in the company as well. But there was one week where you could see each of us were running to get out of the office to go take care of something that needed to be taken care of at home. And it was it was palpable that there is a lot going on. This was pre-pandemic, that we are now a generation of people that were taking care of our extended families and needed to find not just flexibility, although flexibility often is now called the new inclusion, um, that that's the best way to include is to offer that flexibility but grace and a sense of comfort. Uh, it became clear that my work colleagues were the ones that I could lean on the most because it was a bit separate from family and they could listen and hear things differently and offer me different ideas. But that can only happen in inclusive environments. So are there best practices that employers should adopt, not specific to any one supervisor, for example, you know, in, in terms of being able to set up an inclusive environment? How should a company think more holistically about care? I think a lot of them are starting or well past starting that now because uh, a couple of things that we're seeing, uh, which are best practices, leaders at all levels starting to be much more vocal and vulnerable in, t in sharing what's happening with them. So that it, there isn't a feeling that uh, the only way to succeed is by hiding that these parts of your life exist. And I've seen in every one of the instances I've been in, leaders from the C-suite all the way through you would see those pockets of vulnerability come through and uh, more recently, even more so from the C-suite on. And that brings a bit of relief, right? You see it that people are starting to get more comfortable, again, being their full selves. And that kind of modeling becomes very important. We're also seeing more boutique employee assistance programs that are coming forward that allows for a new suite of benefits. 
you know, I happen to be an advisor for a couple of them. Uh, one is called Wealthy, and there are many groups that are like Wealthy, but to give you a sense of what they provide, what they all provide, is they take the administrative friction out of what it takes to take care of someone. And we all have been there. When we've been on a, a conference call, a Zoom call, or even a meeting, and the doctor calls because of what may be happening with a child or an elder, and you know for a fact that if you don't pick up the phone when that doctor calls or that nurse calls, the details won't be in the, in the voicemail, not the details that you need. And you won't be able to return that call quickly because of just what happens in trying to find people. And you'll be two days behind because you missed that one call. And the stakes are too high to be two days behind. And so groups like Wealthy and others, they're able to take that call, be able to be your arms and legs when you're busy doing other things. And it saved me. It allowed me to stay at work a few extra years. Um, there comes a time, I think, for everyone when you know things are getting more progressive and you, you need to spend 100% of your time taking care of someone. And I was blessed to be able to do that with my mom. But that time may have come sooner if I didn't have a benefit suite that allowed some flexibility for me to stay focused at work while also know that some of the administrative things that I'm not necessary for but could still be handled were being handled. And um, I actually believe it allowed me a bit more comfort, but also I think a better quality of life for my mom and I, because the stress at home was not as intense as it could have been. You know, as an aside, I lived with my mom and my mom lived with me for 13 years. And so she was my longest roommate. And so a lot of what we were going through was happening right at home. She saw the stress I was under and that wasn't helping her either. No mom wants to see that for her kids. And so uh, these kinds of new and different benefits are important. Another one is called uh, empathy and empathy picks up where wealthy leaves off basically with bereavement and loss care and the administrative burden and friction of what happens when someone you love passes away a part of life we don't talk about much. And if anyone's gone through it, they you know that silently you and maybe three family members are stuck trying to figure out some really uh, dense administrative steps in wrapping up someone's life right when you're feeling the intensity of grief. It's the worst possible collision of, of factors that comes together. And so groups like Empathy and others are now benefits that employers can tap into to help smooth out that. And they take on some of that hassle and some of that work while also providing virtual counseling if you need it as you go. So a beautiful set of things that are coming up uh, for employers to take a look at. I've named two that are, that are specific companies and I advise for both, but there are many others and they're all here to help us. Uh, it's just now a reimagining of what benefits can look like. And to reimagine planning, I'll end in saying I think in the next round that would be very helpful is on the financial planning side. Uh, we all take about this time of year where it is around the time when everyone's thinking about open enrollment for their health plan. Is there 401k set up the way they want it to be? Or, you know, you're sitting with your financial planner as taxes are starting to come together. It's about the right time to think about all of these issues, too. And it might take the sting out of feeling like you're being hit with a lot of problems in an unpredicted way if we would have some tools and opportunities to talk about planning now. Well, these are great tips that you've provided to our, our listeners. So, Porvi, you come from a healthcare background professionally. Uh, in addition to the personal work that you have to do, what do we need to do in healthcare to support greater care in the home that is ethnically diverse and inclusive? And I hearken back to your immigrant experience. Thanks for the question. You know, there's so many people looking at this question now. 
Um, you hear so much about hospital at home, bringing technology into the household. I'm a big believer in that too. Uh, but I will say home isn't ready. That's the part that I think we've got to grapple with is that we sure can't bring a hospital at home until home is ready. And what does that mean? We, we need more, even in the bricks and mortar of what's necessary at home so that we can take care of people at home. Not everyone has uh, you know main level living in their household, for example. Um, not everybody has all the things that you need to really be able to take care of people at home. And so you're seeing some new and interesting ideas come up with how to ensure that technology can enter the household and new technologies that can make it easier for health providers to be able to more um, efficiently influence the level of care that's happening at home. But I will say, and, and it's not something that's spoken of as openly as I wish it would, is that at the end of the day, you still need people at home. Uh, there's such a chase right now in the care economy that's billions of dollars that's been sized. People are chasing it with an interesting new companies like the couple that I've mentioned before and others. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the talent that's needed at home that provides a certain level of compassionate and quality care that hands-on care is necessary. It's what we want. And we're often doing it as family members and we would want to, uh, but we know that we need support. And it's the shadow part of healthcare that we really haven't invested in to the extent that we need. And we speak of it as the problem, right? We all know that we have a healthcare shortage right now, worker shortage, um, that people are burning out from the tops of, uh, of qualified healthcare all the way through to the front line um, that is all the way into our household. And folks are burnt out, so are family caregivers. But the reason why is because we haven't set the system up so that we can all succeed. The brokenness of the of the referral chain that brings people home, um, the suite of things you need once you get home, uh, which is beyond medical care, right? Do we have uh, the right kind of social care around us? Do we have food that's necessary to ensure someone is able to stay healthy? Do we have transportation that's needed? As healthcare providers and anyone in the healthcare industry, we're big on our jargon, right? So everyone, you'll hear all about social determinants of health pretty much everywhere. And that's fantastic. We need that conversation. I'm a public health person. So I'm the first to say, thank goodness we're talking about it. But at the end of the day, those social determinants require action. And they're not just social determinants for the poor. We all have social determinants. If I can't get into a car and get to my doctor's appointment, I'm out of luck, as was my mom and as was my dad. So the system around us at home hasn't been strong. So that's why I say home isn't ready and home hasn't been invested in to be ready. But we've got great companies out there from Best Buy to, I think there's some spinoffs from some of the Home Depot and Lowe's and other kind of bricks and mortar type of uh, companies that are trying to look at this question. How do we get home ready? Because the, the infrastructure we have today for health and, and aging um, is creaking under the pressure of what's coming. The piece that I'll add that's around ethnicity is very, very real. So in our case, for example, um, you know, I'm of Indian descent, as I, as I mentioned before. My parents, especially mom, is vegetarian. We're a Hindu family. We participated in every part of uh, Medicare that I could figure out and leverage. And here I was for, in healthcare, so I was trying to leverage everything I knew. Uh, and it still left me with gaping holes of understanding, right? So here we are leaders in healthcare, and yet as consumers of healthcare, we're left just as confused as everyone else. So 
as an aside, there's a, a responsibility that those of us in healthcare have, which is to take that confusion back into our work and fix it. Um, so my step in trying to fix it is when um, one of the benefits that my mom had under a Medicare Advantage plan was uh, 10 meals that were provided upon discharge from hospitalization. This is a common uh, benefit that tends to be bundled into a Medicare Advantage plan. The first year that we used it, you know, I was in that moment of chaos. Mom was immediately hospitalized. I was trying to figure things out, still working. And I came home. I'm like, great, 10 meals. Let me see what we can get. As I explore what my mom can have, it seemed that all that was on the menu that would work for her was oatmeal. And in the panic of trying to make sure I could get the best that I could get, I ended up with 10 days, uh, two meals each of oatmeal. Of course, we couldn't eat that much oatmeal, uh, but I wasn't willing to leave it on the table, right? I needed to make sure I got that benefit. The second year when I was met with this, there were a few other, um, very few, but few vegetarian options. And now I had a little more savvy in me because I was getting my, my advocacy under control. And I did speak to the vendor as well as the insurance provider to say, you realize that if I were to fly United, Delta, pick any global airline, I have an option to choose a Hindu menu. I can get a Hindu meal, which means someone's producing this at scale, freezing it and delivering it, which means someone paid attention to do that. So there is no reason why a vendor that's providing meals for us couldn't do that for a Jewish family that may want kosher, a Hindu family that may need something specific, a Muslim family that may need something specific. It's just that we haven't had the willingness to figure that out yet. And the first one that does is going to win share. So put the business hat back on for healthcare. If you wanted to think that through, you could probably market that and you'd have a pretty easy time of it in getting a different segment of the population to sign up for your plan. You just haven't thought it through yet. So this is where one very simple example of ethnicity comes to life. Another comes to life in the hospice side of life. Even in the care and comfort services that happen inside of a hospital, oftentimes a chaplain may come along and uh, come visit someone in the, in the hospital bed, at the bedside, or part of hospice services if you're at that stage of end of life. While they are trained in multiple faiths, um, many times they are not as well-versed in what happens in those faiths, nor do they bring people from that faith with them. I know my mom was much stronger with her advocacy because she had to be with my dad. So when it was her turn, she would sit with the chaplain in the hospital. She had no problem with that. She was an open believer for all, all different faiths. She was very spiritual that way. But she schooled him pretty quickly to say, you realize you have that with me, but there might be an Indian woman two doors down that wouldn't even listen to what you have to say. And if you knew that there were X number of Hindu temples in this town, why not partner with them and bring them with you? so that you're able to bring that service. And that's the same with hospice. I've often had to stay with the hospice providers that when uh, when the time comes and we're in there, you know, when I was shopping around looking for which provider should be the one to serve my mother, I said, it won't be like we're at an Indian restaurant and I'm helping you with the menu at that time. It's actually the other way around. I will be under strain. So I'm going to need you to know more than I do to help me through. Are you ready for that? And most of them were not. And so that's another example. And for the lack of that kind of readiness, you know, we all know you can only go to scale if you hook into a system that's already reaching scale. Our system in this country, which is lovely, it's set up for a majority, which is important. Um, some adaptations to that system would help the rest of us be a part of it. And for the lack of that, 
the rest of us are setting up parallel systems, which does not work. Um, and we know that we're not going to get there if we keep going this way. It, it's not meeting the moment that we're in, which takes us back to inclusion and belongingness again. And uh, and that's a systemic response. Well, Porvi, you inspire me with the, your stories of advocacy and examples of where it's not working. And you do a lot of advocacy around broader access to paid family leave as a partial solution to this problem. Tell us more about what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, we've had some amazing headway on paid leave and paid family leave so that it's not just uh, bifurcated for children and for maternity and paternity leave, but total family leave. And we've been lucky with some some strides uh, in at least normalizing the conversation. Uh, certainly the politics on it have moved a bit. Uh, but I think what's happening is while we make some strides, oftentimes when the sausage making of larger public policy hits, this larger conversation around paid leave, paid family leave falls to the wayside and and frankly comes back to employers and what they're willing to do. And I think everyone is realizing now with so much analysis behind this that no one sector alone can handle it. We're going to need all of us to be inside of this uh, solution because there's only an increased need of care, not a decreased need of care, and therefore an increased need for time to care. And so how can we all reach this uh, conclusion together as employers? And employers are not just private sector. The public sector also employs people. So how do we approach this? And you're seeing some creative uh, use of benefits that are happening, some creative ways of considering um, paid leave time so that it's not just about maternity and paternity leave, but it is inclusive of all family leave inclusive of a broader and more flexible use of time, even for bereavement. As you know, every cultural tradition has a different pathway of how to honor a bereavement. Um, and many bereavement plans are a couple of days, and that doesn't really meet the need of, of uh, whether it's a cultural path or, or your own grieving path and what you may need to just re-enter life. So broader uh, definitions around family leave has been taken up by some employers, which is fantastic, but there is a need now for a larger national conversation and public policy that actually moves to protected leave. We have a lot with FMLA, but as everyone knows, FMLA is not paid leave. Um, it's protection, but it isn't pay. So the, the sooner we're able to ensure that more and more people have that protection and are able to have employment and paid time during that time off that they need, the better will be. And many countries around the world offer that. And you're seeing you know, better qualities of life for a lot of those citizens. And so there's a lot of interest now to move in that direction. Oh, well, thank you for your work on that front. You've shared a lot of thoughts on how we should approach care and loss and grief and the responsibilities of care for the family beyond children. I'm wondering if you could just comment on the workforce that is needed. If you're thinking about a systems approach, what needs to be done on the workforce side? I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, again, with the the hunger to bring care home, you know, the workforce that is closest to home hasn't been invested in to the extent that it needs to be. It hasn't been elevated to be uh, professionalized and grown in the way that it needs to be. And um, beyond the, the banging of pans and the things that we did in the early phases of the pandemic, that energy to really elevate the segment that truly takes care of us at the bedside in a facility and at home um, really hasn't grown. And there's so many reasons why. You can see that you know, hourly pay for many of the people that come into our homes and do basically the most vulnerable work 
um, you know, with a level of compassion that is just remarkable. I mean, you have to really, really come with full heart to take on roles that, that many of these folks do. And yet they're paid often less than minimum wage. Um, you can make more at a Starbucks than doing this here. They ha often have to make hard decisions for their own livelihood. Many, many folks that are working at home to help take care of us um, have their own families that they're trying to take care of, and they don't have a system that allows for that. So what I think is happening in a lot of parts of the world is that there's a, a stronger system of community-based care, community health workers, and a pathway that allows for the community to select people that they trust and care for into the home, formalize training for them, employment of them, and even a talent pathway for them to grow in their own careers. So while you might be able to come in as a community health worker or a home health aide, that there's a clean path that allows you, should you want to, to be into, for example, subsidized nursing school or medical school or any other parts of formalized health system and its care, if you wish. We haven't viewed all of care under one system that allows for a talent pathway, if need be, you know, of course, a, a dignified career that is celebrated. Uh, so that you can, uh, with honor, say that this is the kind of work that you do. Instead, sadly, we view it as labor. And we view it as labor that is challenging to manage with high turnover. And as such, we use the tools of that sometimes to solve for the problem. Um, and at the end of the day, if you talk to anyone that's a family member at home, they will be the first to say when you have someone that cares so deeply and someone who's trained so well to take care of your family member and for whatever reason needs to move on, it is the hardest thing to recover from. Back to that shock. It's not It's not just the shock of all of a sudden knowing you have to take care of, a, of someone at home. It's the constant shock of having to figure it out when someone who's here to help you is now not there because of whatever the system has done um, and their need to move on. So for me, it, it's a trained pipeline of care that's necessary. It's a reimagining of how to turn this as a true career path even considering how to reach uh, young people in high school to, to imagine what they could do here and rebrand it. I keep using rebranding. Maybe it's my Levi's days that keeps bringing this up, but I think it's an opportunity to show the next generation that this can be a really vibrant and important way to spend your life. And we know finally that the majority of people who do provide care closer to home happen to be women of color. And so we've got this larger dynamic that's going on where we're trying to ensure greater levels of equity of service, but also of employment and a fair wage. And none of those things can happen unless we, re I believe, unless we reinvigorate what we can do with care at home um, as a true career path. Well, Porvi, we've learned so much from you. I know that our audience members will agree. As we wrap up, I wanted to give you the opportunity to share any thoughts, any insights, um, any call to action uh, regarding the future of care? Oh, that's a great question. And thank you, Van, for everything you and your organization does. You're hitting on the points that um, we're starting to see so much progress and you're a part of that progress. So I just really want to thank you for, for what you provide and what your partners provide. Um, I think we just need accelerated growth, creative financing for that growth, really looking at more than just what's the problem definition to starting to see outcomes that um, that matter and people have them. There are brave leaders that are starting to step up and speak more and more about these issues. And uh, I think the call to action is uh, threefold. The first, tell your own story proudly and bravely. We all, back to Mrs. Carter's quote, 
um, each one of us has some part of the care story happening live. So no matter where you are in your organization or even at home within your family, um, we're getting ready for a season of gratitude as we close the year. Take the time to talk about it and what it means. So that's the first. Lead bravely, first with yourself and your own story. Um, the second is caregivers that happen to also work in healthcare. Um, try hard to bridge the gap of what's happening personally to what's happening professionally. We all are seeing the confusion as a patient, as a caregiver in facility and out of what it takes to get things done. And somehow it's hard to bring what happens in the living room and the dining room into the boardroom. And I don't think we can do that anymore. There's a moral imperative if you're in healthcare yourself to take that experience and start to problem solve with that in mind. Um, so that would be the second one. And the third is creative financing. There's a lot that makes it difficult because of the way healthcare is organized in our country to really innovate and get to scale. Uh, creative financing around whether it's venture capital, whether it's a public social bond, whether it's an impact investor together with philanthropic investment, what can it take so that we can accelerate growth? Otherwise we will have a patchwork of a lot of really interesting small businesses that are starting, none of which will be ready for scale. That one employer can only do so many boutique EAPs. That alone will not take it to scale. So we're going to need something that catalyzes growth. Well, thank you so much, Porvi, for spending this hour with us. Well, thank you, Vaughn. And for again, thank you for what everything you and your team does. I think the future is going to be shaped by people that are involved with the work that you do. So thank you. Likewise, likewise. I'm Vaughn Tone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.